Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Let's get right to it. The breaking news story is that Ted Thompson... The general man, first of all, a scout for the Packers, the head scout under Ron Wolf, and then the general manager of the Green Bay Packers from 2005 through 2017, has passed away at the age of 68, which is just way, way, way too soon. Just just way, way, way too soon. Um, Ted Thompson had some health problems in the last couple years of, of his life, but I don't know that anybody saw this necessarily coming. Ted Thompson, a very, very interesting legacy. He took over the Green Bay Packers, and he's perhaps best known for his decision to draft a guy named Aaron Rodgers, as Rodgers kept falling in the 2005 draft. Now, at the time... Um, Ted Thompson had on the roster this guy named Brett Favre, who was a three-time MVP who wasn't ready to retire. And yet Thompson made the decision that, hey, I have to think for the future. He drafted Aaron Rodgers. We all know how that has turned out. One of the things that you've got to give Ted Thompson a lot of credit for is the fact that, well, first of all, the Packers won the Super Bowl in 2010. We, we all know that. But secondly, even though you might look at some Packers seasons and say, well, any season that doesn't end with a Super Bowl victory is a disappointment. There, there's no question that Thompson turned the Packers into a perpetual Super Bowl contender, meaning that they made the playoffs year after year after year. And there's not a lot of franchises that can say that. I mean, maybe the New England Patriots can say that. But but the Packers, under Mike McCarthy, and one of the things that Ted Thompson did when he took over, um, Mike Sherman was the coach. He, he got rid of Mike Sherman as the coach, instilled, installed Mark McCarthy. And I, and I understand that, you know, McCarthy, for whatever reasons, you know, wore out his welcome in Green Bay, and now he's in Dallas. But, you know, for, for a long time, and there were a couple of bummer seasons thrown in, the Packers were a perennial power. And I think that is a credit to the teams that Ted Thompson was able to put together. Now, I understand that there's perhaps some people that can have some complaints about it, saying, well, you know, he was too conservative and he got stuck in this philosophy of, you know, his draft and development. And and maybe, you know, if he had been a little bit more aggressive a couple of those years and gone out and made some trades or tried to bring in some high-priced free agents, maybe you could have another Super Bowl victory or something like that. You can always play that would-have, should-have game. But I don't think there's any question that, that Ted Thompson did an absolutely outstanding job as the general manager of the Packers and that he, he definitely belongs in the Packers Hall of Fame. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accunate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. The legacy of Ted Thompson, how do you remember him? Like I say, the news is he's passed away today at the age of 68, which is way, way too young. I, candidly, I, I, I hope for the Packers and the game on Sunday, I think this is an opportunity for, if they didn't need any other motivation, it's the opportunity for the, the team to, you know, win one for Ted. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your recollection how will Ted Thompson be remembered? I, I think objectively, it has to be in an incredibly positive sort of way. 
Uh, I think that there's a lot of a lot of football teams. Matter of fact, pretty much all of them, I think, would probably look back at that time and say, hey, you know, if we had a general manager that could have accomplished what Ted Thompson was able to accomplish in that 12 or 13 year period, we we would take it. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Ted Thompson passes at the age of 68. I think his legacy will be uniformly positive he will go down as as a great Packers general manager all right we discuss in just a moment welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ it's Aaron Rodgers versus Tom Brady in the NFC championship at Lambeau Field join us tomorrow night at six and Saturday at four for Target Tampa championship countdown with our very own Greg Matzik he'll break down the game and get you prepped for Sunday's NFC championship it's Target Tampa only here on news radio WTMJ 855-616-1620 that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line speaking of football if you're just tuning in the um, sad news today is that former Packers general manager Ted Thompson passing away at the age of 68 which is Again, as I as I say more and more nowadays, life is short, and um, that is way too young. I think it was very clear that that Ted Thompson was fighting a couple illnesses and you know had some significant health problems, but at the same time, sixty eight. Wow, way too young. We're talking about the legacy of Ted Thompson, and just to kind of review this, one of the things that the NFL has built itself on is the idea of parity. And that all the rules in the NFL are structured to allow teams to be competitive. That the NFL has just built the league and its success in many parts around, hey, we don't want to have a New York Yankees from the, the 20s and 30s. We don't want to have one team that has a chance to win and all these others who, who really don't. So the NFL has structured all these different rules with regards to, you know, letting teams turn things around. And it, it's why you see teams have up years and you see teams have, have down years. San Francisco has a great year one year. Well, the next year they, they, they don't make the playoffs. During the 13 years that Ted Thompson was the general manager for the Green Bay Packers, now, now get this, the team, and this is in the age of parity, the team qualified for the playoffs nine times. That's nine out of 13. Reached four NFC Championships games and won one Super Bowl in his 13 years as general manager. I mean, just think of that. In the age of parity, nine out of 13 years during the playoffs, four NFC Championships games, and the Super Bowl. You know, in one of the statements that was issued after Ted Thompson's passing, um, Packers president Mark Murphy, uh, well, this is what he said at, at the time that Thompson was inducted into the Packers Hall of Fame. What really stands out is the consistency. It's very hard to win in the NFL, let alone for a year, but on a consistent basis. Everything is designed to make it difficult to win that way. When you look at what Ted accomplished in his 13 years as general manager, it's really remarkable. And yeah, it, it's that consistency, I think, which is um, incredible. All right, here's some text. 855-616-1620 is our number. Um, Mike in Marquette, Michigan says, I will remember Ted as someone who was a master at building through the draft, first by taking a chance on Rodgers, uh, trading far for the pick that turned into Clay Matthews, and complementing a talented roster with veterans like Charles Woodson in order to win the, the Super Bowl. Yep, I mean, that's what you had there. Um, there's no question about it. Lou and West Alice says, um, uh, as to his legacy, um, well, he, he did not surround Brett Favre with enough talent to make multiple Super Bowl picks, and the same can be said about Aaron Rodgers. 
at the same time, and I understand that, but at the same time, there is that consistency that's there. And, you know, you look back on the teams that make the Super Bowl, and a lot of times it's one or two plays. Jeff, the Packers have four All-Pros this year, all drafted by Ted. What a legacy. Rest in peace. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's the thing. And I understand it. As fans, we're all hypercritical. And, and we all we all want to win every year. And we all want to have all these demands that are there. Um, yep. But at, at the same time, I, I think you have to understand, I think people just don't appreciate how difficult it is to contend. And were there missed opportunities? Well, of course there were missed opportunities. Of course. And, and I think it's fair to say, boy, you know, given how great Rodgers has been, it's unfortunate that he was only get to, able to get to the Super Bowl one time up until this year. Now, I think they're going to win on Sunday, and I think they're going back to the Super Bowl. But that the bottom line is they were competitors year after year after year. And would you have traded those years for any other team over the course of that 10 or 12 year period? Yes, New England, New England had a lot of success. And there's no question about that. But beyond New England, I don't think there's too many teams whose records stacked up with the Packers. They, it was his final record as general manager was about 125 and 82, which in a league that prompts and relies on parity, I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. Regardless, Ted Thompson dead at the age of 68. Sail on. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Boy, how the mighty have fallen. If you want a, a snapshot of what's going on in the newspaper industry, this story is an eye-opener. The Chicago Tribune, which for decades and decades has been one of the, the gold star type of media properties, you know, along with, I'd say, if you're looking at newspapers, it would be the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. You think of the Chicago Tribune. The Chicago Tribune, which for years and years was part of Tribune Tower and, and all that, well, they've... Um, They're in Prudential Plaza now, a downtown office complex. They announced the other day that they were they were leaving. They were moving out of Prudential Plaza and they were moving to another location. Um, Well, here's part of the reason, I guess, why they're moving, because the Tribune, Tribune Publishing, they're they're deadbeats. Uh, The story is apparently they haven't been paying rent since March. The Chicago-based newspaper train hasn't paid rent since March. The company's letter of credit, and a, a letter of credit for people who don't know, it's where you, it, it's essentially like a, a revolving uh, a revolving loan with a bank, where the bank says, okay, well, well here's the deal. We're going to guarantee you 50, 100,000, a million, or whatever dollars, and you can draw on that line of credit. The bank's line of credit The company's line of credit ran out of funds earlier this month, and the line of credit was created in October of 2017 when the lease was signed. So apparently as a condition of getting to to move into the place, what they insisted on was, look, you've got to have a line of credit that's there that you can draw from. Well, they've drawn that all down, so the line of credit is, is gone. My guess is they can't get another line of credit. They haven't paid rent since March. They owe $4.8 million, $4.8 million in back rent, and so now they're they're moving. And, again, it's 
do, do companies run into problems financially all the time? Well, sure, that, that, that happens. So that's not necessarily a surprise. But when you think about a company like the Chicago Tribune, I mean, sort of like a silk stocking publisher, uh, publishing operation that is now really at a point of, of deadbeat status, it, it's almost uh, amazing. And again, it demonstrates the problem that newspaper you know, companies have with regard to this. Now, the Tribune, the company that owns the Tribune, what they've done is they, they've um, they've actually shuttered other newsrooms that they've owned, you know, that of other newspapers that they've owned. But the bottom line is that this is it's it's when when you find yourself getting sued for failure to pay rent and you're that far behind. Man, it's it's not a good sign, and you wonder how do you end up coming back from something like that. All right, now yesterday, if you watched video of the inauguration, what you saw was essentially Washington D.C. turned into an armed camp. I and I, I I don't criticize the efforts for doing that after what happened a couple weeks ago. I think in retrospect, you can look back and say, okay, maybe this was sort of overkill. Maybe there was an overreaction. But at the same time, you'd rather be safe than, than sorry. What happened, what happened two weeks ago, last two weeks ago yesterday was unacceptable. The Capitol Police were not prepared for the riot or the phrase that's being thrown around now a lot was insurrection. They weren't prepared for, for that. You have lawmakers who felt that they were in danger. Um, so it was cl- completely unacceptable, and you needed more of a security presence. So what they essentially did is they turned Washington, D.C. yesterday into an armed camp. Maybe it was because of that, or maybe it was because the intelligence that suggested that there really were going to be riots wasn't, wasn't that good. But, again, you'd rather be safe than sorry. So I don't criticize the huge military presence that was there. I'm the guy who argues that you can't allow Kenosha to happen again. And that is that it is better to call out the National Guard when you think that there is the the prospect of civil unrest in order to stop people from committing millions of dollars worth of damage and to deter them from doing that, as opposed to underreact and let stuff happen. So I I don't criticize the the huge military response. But the interesting thing from yesterday is that there were for whatever reasons, and it's all to the good, there were not riots, there were not armed takeovers, there was not violence in the nation's capital, and the inauguration came off without a hitch. In addition, remember we were seeing all these reports that you had all these National Guard troops and all this law enforcement that was on on watch because there were reports or concerns that in various state capitals across the country, there might be rioting, there might be unrest. And again, it's better safe to be sorry than sorry. I understand all that. But the good news is nothing happened. There, there weren't there weren't efforts to storm state capitals. There weren't massive protests. There weren't violence that wasn't violence. Oh, oh, wait. Now, let me stop for a second there. That's not quite true because you might not have seen this, but there was... There was violence yesterday. Matter of fact, you did, in fact, have riots. Hours after the Biden inauguration, um, you had a riot in, wait for it, downtown Portland, Oregon. You had rioters, and these were not Donald Trump rioters. These were rioters who damaged the ICE building, the Immigration and Customs building. This was Antifa, people who um, started throwing rocks and eggs, vandalizing the building, people dressed in black. This was Antifa, who has decided that Joe Biden 
is not acceptable them to them either. Now, Lord knows what would happen if it was Donald Trump, but you did have rioting in downtown Portland. Again, this was from the left, including people who were armed. Now, in addition to that, you had some more activity in Seattle. Um, the chants were no cops, no prisons, no borders, no presidents, said one banner proclaim that the conflict over racial justice, policing, immigration, and corporate influence in the country was not over merely because Joe Biden was in Washington. Quote, a Democratic administration is not a victory for oppressed people, said somebody as they vandalized a Starbucks store in downtown Seattle. Bottom line of all this is, and again, it it doesn't get the coverage, It doesn't get the coverage that happens when you have the right-wing protests. But for everybody who thinks that Antifa has gone away, that the left-wing fringe has gone away, well, you're lucky you weren't in Seattle or Portland yesterday. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. You you can see I've, I've got a link to a story that's got some film footage of what went on yesterday. And I'm not saying that the 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 kook left riots weren't covered. I'm saying that they weren't covered very extensively. And you, you might not have realized that there was, in fact, violence yesterday, but it wasn't from Trump supporters who were disenchanted. It was in Portland. It was in Seattle. It was in Denver. And it came from the left. It was Antifa. It was the folks that showed up. Uh, with the black face masks and things like that. Um, and in Denver, it was actually from some fringe elements of the Black Lives Matter movement who showed up with the idea that they they're, they don't like Trump, they don't like Biden, they don't like Republicans, they don't like Democrats, and they're, they're just hell-bent on destroying stuff until the, what they get their way. Now, nobody knows exactly what their way is, but... If if you think these issues are going to go away and if Joe Biden thinks that suddenly you can ma- wave this magic wand and you're going to make people happy, I think what he's going to find is that there are just elements in this country, some on the right and a lot on the left, that they, they just they don't like America and they're bent on destroying things and lashing out. And it's not going to change. Donald Trump was the object of their hatred for for months and months. And now that he's gone, they're they're not going to go away. They're just going to find another excuse to engage in the violence that they engage in. Okay, one of the things that I've been saying this for the last couple days that I I enjoy wanting to talk about on the program is policy issues. One of the things that's happened, and I said this yesterday, over the course of the last four years is it was somehow difficult to talk about policy because President Trump was such a lightning rod. And by that I mean – it, it could have been a policy that he decided to adopt, and if Barack Obama would have adopted it, people on the left would have loved it. But because Trump adopted it, they hated it because they hated Donald Trump. Similarly, people on the right, and, and there were cults both ways. There were cults of Trump haters. There were cults of Trump lovers. The people on the right, if 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 Donald Trump did something, that if Barack Obama had done it, they would have been absolutely outraged. But because Trump did it, they, they loved it. And it was very, very difficult to talk about issues because lots of people viewed the issues through the prism of whether you loved Trump or you hated him. And, and, you, and I couldn't get people to focus on the merits of the issue. It's just, well, that can't be a good idea. Trump is pushing it. Or that can't be a bad idea. Trump is pushing it. Hopefully, we can start to have more policy sort of discussions. Now, I thought President Trump, when it came to immigration, was wrong from the beginning when he started talking about building a border wall. 
I thought that was wrong because, to me, if it was going to be a metaphor, hey, we need to tighten up the nation's border security to stop people from coming into the country illegally, I, I could understand that. But he didn't mean it as a metaphor. He wanted to build miles and miles of walls. And to me, that seemed like a 16th century approach to um, immigration because people go over walls, they go under walls, they go around walls. Um, the walls would have to be built on private property. It just, to me, it was a, a campaign slogan that had no chance of being enacted in reality. But that's not to say that we don't have an immigration issue. I also thought President Trump was wrong from the beginning when he started talking about illegal, well, people with illegal immigration and describing people as racist, as, as rapists and drug dealers and all that stuff. Yes, there might be some of that. And yes, you have drug cartels that are coming in and operating in the Southwest. I, I understand that. But that's not the majority of people who are in this country illegally. The vast majority of people who are in this country illegally came to the United States looking for a better life. In addition, they're working at jobs that Americans don't often want to do. I mean, that, and that's just the other reality. And so I've always been, when it comes to immigration, I've been not an open borders, let people come in illegally. But at the same time, I've also been somebody who says, look, if we, we for our economy to thrive, what we want to do is we want to. We want to attract people, especially if we've got people who are going to come in and they're going to be able to work at jobs, in particular, like I say, jobs that Americans don't want to do. I thought the president's lumping everybody who's in this country illegally in the same basket was wrong. I also thought that the president's concentration was wrong. But by that, I mean, let's say you've got 13 million people in this country illegally. And of those 13 million, pick a number. Let's say a million are the problem. That, that, that yes, you, you've got a million who are part of this, this criminal enterprise. That's probably high. But let, let's take a million. I thought that what you needed to do was concentrate and focus on the million that was causing the problem as opposed to spending time trying to go after the dreamers, you know, the, the the people that had come in, their parents had brought them into the country, they've grown up in this country for the last 20 years, they've gone to school here, they're paying taxes, they've got jobs. But, but President Trump lumped everybody into the same basket, and I always thought that that was a mistake. Given the fact that you have limited resources, limited immigration judges, limited immigration attorneys, I always thought it made sense to try to concentrate on on the problems. Let's try to identify the people that are causing the problems. Let's get them out of the country. That, and then let's concentrate on trying to keep them out of the country. And if they keep coming back, let, let's punish them. And, and, and why are we spending time trying to track down some 22-year-old who was brought into the country at the age of four by her parents and hasn't created any sort of problems at all? So I thought the president was misguided in that response. So Joe Biden, says he wants to take on immigration. And and here, essentially, this is his plan. He's sending over to Congress something called the U.S. Citizenship Act. It's an eight-year roadmap for citizenship for an estimated 11 million immigrants who are currently illegally in the United States, here without legal status. Okay, so what the plan would do is if you fit into one of the the categories, like you're a dreamer, you know, um, if you're um, a farm worker, if you have protected status, here's the deal. You would get um, an interim status for five years 
including work authorization and the ability to travel abroad, followed by green cards if you pass background checks and pay taxes. So people in this country illegally would be able to get green cards um, after this five-year thing as long as you you know pay, pass background checks and pay taxes. Three years after becoming permanent residents, you could apply for citizenship. So the idea is within eight years, you could be a U.S. citizen. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think President Biden is both right and wrong. I think, given the realities of the situation, and yes, I understand what part of illegal don't you understand, Jeff, I think we have to figure out a way of dealing with the you know, 11, 12, 13 million people who are in this country illegally. And the truth of the matter is deportation is not it's just not realistic. President Trump talked about it. It didn't happen. It didn't work. We're not going that route. I think if you can figure out a way to, again, create a way for permanent residency, and that's by people doing background checks, and that's by people paying taxes and things of the like, I don't have a problem with the permanent resident status. Where I have an issue is with that next step, providing citizenship. To me, that's different. Permanent resident status is one thing, and I could go along with that. To me, that makes sense. Citizenship for people who came in illegally, that's different. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So Joe Biden floats this proposal that I, I agree with parts of it and I disagree with parts of it. He wants to give people who are illegally in this country, who aren't creating problems, a pathway to permanent residence. I can go with him on that one. But then he also wants to give them a pathway to citizenship. That's kind of where I draw the line. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Vincent in Milwaukee. Vincent, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to say that uh, I think we wouldn't be at this particular point if the Republicans would have accepted the Gang of Eight uh, 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 proposal to uh, immigration under Obama. But the fact is they didn't want Obama to have a win, so the fact is we're here today. But I agree with the President, Bra- President Biden. The fact is you have to have a path to citizen, citizenship, especially for individuals who are contributing to, to our society, such as the Dreamers. They're, they're in the military. They're, 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 they kept their nose clean. They're doing the right thing. And, and you just have, to me, have an incentive to that, hey, someday that, you can be, you, that, that, that those things won't go to waste. Well, why do, you, this, why do you need citizenship? Society. Why do you need citizenship as opposed to permanent legal residency? Well, I think the fact is is that it, it, it still denotes a part of, of danger. The fact is that it, that if you become a citizen, that can't be taken away from you. Mm-hmm. The fact is, if you got a permanent residency, that 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 can be taken away from you. So it denotes an issue of that. You still have people afraid that they still mm-hmm. can be just picked up and kicked out of this country. If they if they've done the right thing for the last twenty years or thirty years in this country. And 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 maybe they have a misdemeanor or something like that. Mm-hmm. It still it it still put that that fear in that hey I can be kicked out of this country. But if I've kept my nose clean for the last twenty thirty years and been a productive 
a citizen in this country. But you haven't been a citizen. You, 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 but, today or tomorrow, but you haven't been. A, you haven't been a citizen. You've been a protect. A pro, you've been a productive, illegal resident of of the the country. You're, you're not a citizen. I mean that exactly. Okay, but I guess my my point is, what what does that say to all the people that are are doing it the right way, that are jumping through all those hoops, and who you know who waited a couple of years to come into this country? I mean, what does it say to them? Does it say that they're all a bunch of chumps because they they played by the rules? No, because there's there's two different circumstances. There's individuals who decided to come here and wanted to be citizens. No, they're not chumps. But we have a problem. We have a problem with with, with with thousands and thousands of individuals who are illegal in this country. And there are dreamers here who, who, mm-hmm. who don't know their status. They're in limbo, and we need to do something about it. And, and I'm not saying have, have a path to citizenship in one to two or three years, but at least have it on the table. Okay. Well, thank you. See, that's where I, I'm not one of these hardcore people because I who say you deport everybody because to me that didn't make sense. It's also not practical. And, and you saw during the Trump administration, they weren't able to make it, it happen. At the same time, I, I think... I think that there is a middle ground, and I guess that's what I'm arguing for, because let, let's face it, citizenship is a whole different story. Citizenship gives you voting rights and things of, of the like. I think that, again, permanent residency, and I understand what you're talking about, Vincent. You're saying, well, if they're permanent residents, they could have it taken away. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. You know, permanent residency is one thing, saying, okay, you're – it creates a, a second class, a separate class of individuals to say, "Okay, you you can stay, you can stay here, and you you can work here, and you can you know enjoy the benefits, and you can send your kids to school here, and you can participate in these avenues." But but yes, when it comes to citizenship, when it comes to things like voting and stuff like that, we're, we're going to draw the line. And I guess that's what I don't think is an unreasonable sort of position. Candidly, if he wants to get this done and he wants to get broad support. I think that citizenship thing is going to be the the big hang-up. I think most, I hope, many people would agree with the idea of permanent residency to, again, if people jump through all the hoops, say, all right, we're going to forget about the fact that you came in the country illegally. And it's not just the dreamers. It's other people as well. But I, I agree. Spending time, you know, going after somebody who was brought in illegally when they were five years old and who have been in this country for the last 22 years and haven't created problems, spending time and resources and trying to ferret those people out and send them back to where ever it was that they came from, to me that that's counterproductive, especially since, again, I, I view the United States as a melting pot. I want to see people come into this country, um, and, and we, if we are going to grow and thrive and survive, we, we do need to have that immigration, especially given the fact that, like I say, a lot of the immigrants are doing jobs that a lot of Americans don't want to do. So if, if you want to do that, that's fine. I'm not arguing for deportation. I'm fully in support of a form of legal residency. Citizenship remains my hang-up, though. Let's talk to Mike. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? I tend to agree with you. Um I think there's a big jump between permanent resident and uh, citizen. Yes. In fact, voting is a huge one. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing for kids that were brought here with their parents. Their parents were the ones that were breaking the law. Um, and so I guess I would have a little more sympathy for them. Uh, for adults that came here legally, I guess the only way I could see them uh, being allowed to become citizens would if, if they paid a fine because they, in fact, broke the law, broke a serious law, and it's sort of a snub to the people who have been here their whole lives legally 
and have done the right thing and paid their taxes. Right, or the, or the other people who've who've immigrated to this country and done the right oh, thing yeah. and, and done the way you know and filled out all the forms. That that to me is, is the thing. And again, I, what I think you and I are talking about, Mike, is is kind of the reasonable middle ground, which says, all right, look, we're yeah. we're going to allow people to be in this country. We're we're not going to. You don't have to worry that the immigration people are going to kick on your door, you know, late at night and and take you away. You don't have to worry. You can get your green card. You can travel abroad, and you can come back. All those things, except when it comes Which to actually being right. Oh, absolutely. You you know you 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 can work in the meat processing plant. You can work wherever. You don't have to use you worry about fake names or fake social security numbers. If you want to visit, you know, um, relatives in wherever, you can do it. You can come back into this country. I'm all in favor of that sort of stuff. It's just citizenship to me is a big big deal, and and that's that's my hang up. That's where I think the plan goes too far. Yes, I had to agree with you. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Um, and, and that's what I think the hang-up is going to be here. It's it's that last step of citizenship. Now, I hope people don't get too caught up in that. And, and maybe maybe this is something that's going to evolve. You know, maybe maybe what you do is you say, okay, let let's let's try the first part of this. Let's see how this works. Let's let's roll out the five year plan. Let let's roll out the idea. This is what you have to do. This is the hoops you have to jump through to get your permanent residency, to get your green card, to be able to travel. Maybe let's see how all that works. Then Five years from now, six years from now, maybe you can revisit the whole idea of, okay, for the people who've done all these things, let's see how many people really do sign up. Let's see how many people pass the background checks. Let's see how many people pay taxes. Let's see how many people register and, and work. And my guess is there's going to be a lot. At least my hope would be that there's a lot. But let's see how all that plays out. Then then we can maybe revisit the whole idea of citizenship. But creating the eight-year path right now, I think is a bridge too far. Eight five five six one. Well, I tell you, we're kind of up against the um, clock. Um, Jeff, guess what? If you give everybody citizenship, guess who they're going to vote for? Would it be a Democrat? Not necessarily. See, that's the that that is the the myth myth here. And by the way, I think you know that's one of the challenges that the Republican Party has moving forward. And and you saw that in some of these elections. This idea that gee, you know, people from you know different groups. Vote is a monolith. That's not necessarily the case at, at all. And I, I think that the fact, the assumption that, gee, if somebody comes in and has this path, it gets into this country, they're automatically going to be a Democrat. I don't buy that. I don't think that's the case. And if that's the case, it's more a problem with the message the Republican Party has than anything else. But the bottom line is, I, I think citizenship at this point in time is something that should be reserved for people who have played by all the rules, at least thus far. Permanent residency, different. Let people come in. And then, like, like I say, maybe five years from now, this program is will be this huge success, and we'll turn around and we'll look at this and we'll all say, no, this is clearly a great idea. Now it's ready to take the next, next step. I just think bundling it all together is a bad idea. I also think it probably makes it politically unpalatable for a large number of people. A lot of great stuff coming up on today's program. Are you a rhino? What does that mean now? And a Greendale teacher says he was fired inappropriately. We talk about that. But right after the news, President Biden wants to mandate masks on planes. We're going to have a conversation about it because I just got off a plane. We'll discuss. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. As one of his executive orders yesterday, President Biden, on his first day of office as part of his effort to change the course of COVID, said he plans to issue an executive order promoting COVID-19 safety in domestic and international travel. Now, at airports across the country, I think the standard is you, you have to wear a mask. I know on flights, the rules are that you have to wear masks. But this travel order will require people to wear masks in airports, on certain modes of public transportation, including trains, airplanes, intercity buses, according to White House officials. Okay, and, and that's all well and good. I want to talk about how we enforce something like this and how aggressively we enforce something like this. Now, as I said, over the weekend, I was in Florida, flew down Saturday, came back um, on Tuesday. And I'll just talk about the return trip. On On Tuesday, I, I got to the airport a little bit early for my flight. So I'm sitting around the airport and, I, and I'm watching this stuff go on. And, and they've got a rule in the airport that you're supposed to wear masks. So you have... Thousands and thousands of people are sitting around in the airport, and I would say 90% of them are wearing masks. I would say of the 90% that are wearing masks that I saw, 75% are wearing masks properly, and 25% are doing this. Well, I, I, I understand they, they call it like the man-slipping thing, where the, the mask is like down around their, you know, it's it doesn't cover their nose. So that, I would say about... I don't know. Of that 90%, 75% were wearing them right. But the other ones, they, they've got their nose exposed, which kind of defeats the purpose of of wearing the, the mask. So you've got all these people who aren't wearing the mask appropriately. So then we get on, on the flight. And I told this story quickly yesterday from a slightly different perspective. In the row in front of me, there's there's it's a family that's traveling together there's a, a in the window seat there's a two and a half year old there's the mom in the middle there's the five year old that is sitting on the aisle and dad's across the uh, aisle uh, he's across the aisle and so the rule is on southwest which is what i flew and i think it's consistent with other airlines the rule is that you you have to wear a mask if you're over two so the kids come on they don't have masks on so the flight attendant says that they've got to wear masks so they 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 give them masks, I think. And, you know, they put them on the two-and-a-half-year-old. They put them on the five-year-old. That lasts all of 30 seconds it, because they're two-and-a-half and, and they're five. So, all right, the kids, they're being kids. They're bouncing around. Um, it, it's everything you can do to get them to sit in the seat. And there's these kids, and I think there's a couple other people that aren't religiously wearing their masks appropriately, all right? So there's a lady, I think a couple rows behind me, who's complaining to the flight attendant. These people, including the kids, aren't wearing the masks. They come on. The flight is now in the air. It's a two-hour and 40-minute flight to Milwaukee. The flight is in the air. The flight attendant comes on, reminds everybody that they're supposed to be wearing masks. She's relatively stern with that, and some people listen to her. Some people don't. As far as the kids, it's just a lost cause. It's a flat-out lost cause because the parents... These are not bad parents. These are not punched out parents. They keep saying to the two and a half year old, you got to wear your mask. And the kid is saying, no, I'm not going to do it. So, you know, what what do you do at this point in time? The five year old is essentially the, the same way. Now, President Biden wants to impose a rule that says that these masks are mandatory. That That's all well and good. And I don't have a problem with wearing masks on airplanes. I, I, I get it. I'll, I'll be willing to do it. But my question is, what do we do to enforce this? 
And, and this is a very, very serious question. So now imagine an airplane. Um, you've got 130 people that are on the airplane. You've got three flight attendants. You've got a pilot. You've got a co-pilot. And, and what do you do with the situation where you have the, the kids who just, despite the best effort of mom and dad, they ain't wearing that mask? They're, they're just not going to wear that mask because they're constantly going to be pulling it off. What, what do you do? Do you land the plane and, and have the parents hauled off? I mean, is that what we want to do? Do you have, for the people that are improperly wearing the mask, do we have the U.S. Marshals waiting when the flight uh, lands in Milwaukee to, to arrest people? I mean, 855-616-1620. I, I understand the policy. I don't disagree with the policy that people should wear masks. But in the real world, is something like this enforceable, and how do you in- enforce it? Are we going to arrest people? Are we going to find people? Are we going to find the parents? Is this is is it? Does it make sense to say, okay, look, this is our guideline, and we want to encourage this, and this is the rule? But then the question becomes, all right, how are we going to enforce the rule? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What do you do to make people comply? Can you make people comply, and how far do you want to go? Because, like I say, I, I, I don't see it to be practical to find this mom and dad. I don't see it to be practical to land the plane and, and force them to get off. What do you do? 855-616-1620. And if it's not enforceable, does it make sense to have it as a rule as opposed to a guideline? 855-616-1620. A guideline that I agree that we should all follow. I'm not complaining about wearing the mask. I'm just saying, what do you do with the people who don't or won't? We discuss in a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855 If you're just tuning in, President Biden, as part of his executive orders, is saying, okay, mandatory masks on airplanes. Okay, that, that's all well and good. And, and I have no problem with wearing a mask on an airplane. But my question then is, okay, and then what? Because like I was saying, I'm on a flight Tuesday coming back. There's two kids, two and a half and five, despite the best efforts of the parents. And I mean that. These kids aren't wearing the masks. They're, they're just, they are, they're pulling them off. They're not doing it. And so you had a couple other people, adults, that weren't doing it either. All right, how far are we going to go to enforce this? Are you going to land the plane in you know, Cincinnati and, and take the people off? Are you going to have sky marshals waiting at the end of the flight to make arrests? What, what exactly are you going to do to enforce this? 855-616-1620. Before we go to the phones, let me just share a couple of the texts here. Put the parents on the no-fly list and make sure they realize that this flight will be their last flight. Uh, Jeff, my son has a trip to, he won to Florida on an airline. He has a 12-year-old that will be going on the trip, but his three-year-old will not be going along. The three-year-old will not cooperate wearing a mask on the flight, so this child will stay home with the child's mom. 855-616-1620. Jeff, what I think the airline should do is when they make their pre-flight announcements mentioning about wearing the face masks, they should make the passengers aware that there will be a $100 fine for not wearing the mask during the flight, and you can pay that when you depart the plane at the kiosk. All right, well, okay, you, you say that, but then you give the you give the parents this slip. Your kids didn't have the mask on during their flight, and the parents say, um, no, um, 
<laughs> Jeff, they have to hand out parachutes to people who do not comply. I, it's, okay, well, you know, but this is a real issue. Jeff, I have never agreed with any mask mandates. Let people decide for themselves if they choose to wear a mask. If masks really help, then why have so many people uh, continue to get COVID? We should lot, not let government decide everything for us. Well, let me just stop there. I mean, but the rule, the rule is that you're supposed to wear it. Um, Jeff, I think you should change the age limit to 10 years old. I, I do, I, I mean, I guess, I don't know where the two and a half year comes old comes from, because I mean, I, I was watching this all happen, and, and I'm just seeing it in real time, that two and a half year old isn't going to wear that mask. Okay, 855-616-1620, let's start with John on the Northwest Side. John, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure, um, hey I just think that, uh, I think if, um, you know, that they need to have a designated spot on their plane, you know, uh, for, for, for kids. You know, and, and, and their parents, if you're going to have a kid, because you can't step the plane. You know, if you want to fly, you got to go by the rules. You know, I mean, it, it's simple as that. If you don't want to do that, then take a train or something. You know, it's, kids are kids. You know, they're not going to wear no mask. Right. Well, that, that was it. These that. kids were not, these kids, they weren't bad kids, but they weren't going to, there's no way that two and a half year old and five year old were going to sit for two hours and 45 minutes wearing that mask. It just wasn't going to happen. It's unfair, it's unfair to the kid. It's unfair to the kid. So what you would do is you would have like a no mask section and you would stick them in the back of the plane or something like that. Right, right. There you go. Okay, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I don't know. What do you do with the adults? I, and I, I wish I had an answer to this. I guess I, but th- this is the problem that I, I have wrestled with from the beginning. You, I don't believe that you, you pass rules unless you're prepared to enforce them. And I guess my question is, how do you enforce them? Um, now, I have a note here. Somebody's saying, well, Jeff, I think what they should do is they should go through this, this screening thing, you know, in the, you know, before in the pre-board thing. Um, but, but again, here, here's the problem. You know, they, they make that announcement. I'm sitting, you know, in the waiting area waiting to get on the plane and the and the, the gate attendants going, all right, these are the rules. You have to wear a mask in the waiting area. You have to wear a mask on the plane. There's no exceptions except when you are actively eating or drinking. And the way they define it, that means is you, you take a sip out of your bottle of water and you're supposed to put your mask back, which kind of, I think, defeats the purpose of the mask, again, if you're pulling it up and pulling it down. But that's another story. But but there's nothing that says how you enforce this. And, and honestly, I, I, one of the things I wrestle with is I, I did, I felt kind of, I felt sort of bad for the parents here, and I understand some of you aren't going to be sympathetic to that, but they're they're trying to comply, but they've got two kids that are on, that, that just are being kids. You've got the flight attendants who understand what the rules are, and they're kind of arguing with the parents, but it it's... I, I don't know. It's kind of just like arguing with a brick wall because the parents aren't disagreeing with them. The parents will say, you know, okay, you got to wear the mask. And the kid will put the mask on, and then 30 seconds later, the mask comes off. And I feel bad for these flight attendants because the flight attendants, they're, they're, they're worried about all sorts of other things as opposed to getting into confrontations with parents who, in this particular case, aren't even being jerks. They're, they're trying to get the kids to comply, but, but they won't. I mean, is the answer, I, I don't know, is the answer that you don't let kids fly? Or that the kids have to somehow demonstrate that they can keep a mask on during this thing? How practical is that? 855-616-1620. Tom in West uh, Bend. Tom, you're on WTMJ. I'm sorry, New Berlin. Hi. Hi, Tom. Yeah, I want to say that I know from actual experience, my wife is a kindergarten teacher, and she's been teaching about 20 kids since the beginning of the year, since September. And five-year-olds are very good at wearing masks. My wife is very honest, better than adults. 
you had just one situation that you saw, and you probably had a situation where those parents were not wearing masks on a regular basis, and now they had to all of a sudden, so the kids weren't used to it. But the, the five-year-olds, so they're, what there should be, I mean, we have 400,000 people that are dead so far. It's probably going to go to 700,000. So somebody on that plane could die because these parents have not been having their kids wear masks. Because five-year-olds overall are going to wear masks. My, um, my wife's got 20 kids. So some of these kids, their parents were like anti-maskers originally. So if they don't abide by it with people dying, and they, they do believe now it'll be like 700000 this is death, then they should be fined like $1,000. Okay, so what? That will motivate them. So what you or 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 not to so so what you? I'm I'm just this is a question. So what you would do? They've got the two and a half. They've got the five year old. The kids aren't keeping the masks on. You would have them charged and give them cited and given a thousand dollar per kid ticket. That's what you would do. Yeah, people get a thousand dollars fines and more for drunken driving when they don't even hurt anybody. Just for having you know, all you need is three beers on an empty Mm -hmm. stomach. I know I had a friend that had that. He didn't hurt anyone. He's got, he's got to pay up to $13,000. So if they can afford to fly, you know, if this is well known ahead of time, then people oh. won't risk. Well, there, well there's no, and there's if no secret. I mean, they've got the rules. Okay, thanks for the call. I appreciate I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. 855-616-1620. All right, it, it, do, do you want to have that crackdown? I mean, is, is this going to be the deal? Because if this is the case, I, I guarantee you what's going to be happening is you'll you'll have stories like this 10, 15, 20 times a day in the national media, uh, two and a half year parents of two and a half year olds getting citations because the kid pulled down the mask. Now, is, is that the way we want to go? And I guess the, the, the argument would be that if you're going to have this rule in place, there needs to be some consequence for it. Maybe the other question is, is two and a half is that too young to require the, the wearing a mask? Is for kids, does it make more sense at the age of five? Whatever. Let's talk to um, Angela in West um, Angela in West Dallas. Angela, hello. Hi. So I work in a grade school, and we have three-year-olds who have to wear masks. I'm not sure if two-and-a-half-year-olds, but I would think they could. But our three-year-olds have to do it, as do our five-year-olds. I mean, the parents were told to maybe work through it a little bit in the summer before school started, but they do it successfully. Okay, so in the airline situation, you, you have the deal I'm describing. The kids refusing to wear the mask. You put it on for 30 seconds and then pull it down. H- how do you how do you handle that? Do you do what the last guy said, which is, you know, warn the parents once or twice, and then after that, there's somebody waiting and they get a thousand dollar citation or something like that. How, how do you enforce it? Oh, I would tell the parents those kids have to know before they get on the plane how to do it. Yeah, enforcing it is harder, but, but you know, tell the kids, no Disney if you don't wear your mask and make them wear it around the house before they leave. I think if you put it on the kid for the first time on an airplane, of right. course they're going to want to take it off. Right, but I guess, uh, I guess my... enforcing part, I don't Yeah, know. see that, now thanks, see that, and that, that's, I'm getting some text. So I, the, the, to me, I'm not arguing about the wisdom of the mask rule. I, I understand where it comes from and things like that. I'm arguing about the real-world practicality of, of what do you do in this real-world situation that I saw yesterday, I saw Tuesday, that I think probably plays out all, all the time on, on planes or in these public settings. And again, the, the question is, how, how do you screen the kids for for this? Because, okay, even if somebody was saying, well, okay, you, you, you check them out, you make sure that they can sit with the, the mask on for five minutes in the waiting room. Okay, well, e- even if you do that, at some point, 
point in time they're going to get on the plane for the three or the four hour flight and then boom the thing comes down I guess that's got to be the question and then who does enforce it because again I feel bad for the flight attendants they've got all sorts of other things to do as opposed to like, like trying to be the, the mask police as well. And I don't mean that to be facetious. I'm just saying, okay, now the flight attendants are in a situation with saying, ma'am, if the child takes off that mask one more time and I see this happen, you're going to get a $1,000 fine. I mean, you want to talk about something that's going to make air travel even more contentious. Bottom line of all this is I hope they get the vaccinations out. I hope we get herd immunity. So I hope we don't have to worry about this moving forward. Hopefully this is a conversation that we'll look back on six months from now and say, well, okay, the, the rule has, has now gone by the wayside because we don't need to wear them anymore. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here's a text. Uh, Jeff, my daughter is two and a half years old and no way and you know what that she keeps that mask on. My four-year-old is excellent with wearing it. I don't think people should be taking kids under four or five on flights first off right now. And yes, even though I'm a parent, I agree with a fine of some sort. Um, Hello, Jeff. I'm responding to the caller suggesting a $1,000 fine for kids who can't keep their masks on. First, I think two-and-a-half-year-olds are questionable to be responsible for wearing a mask. Their moods can change on any given day. Second, you can fine the parents, but either way, if they're not wearing the mask and he felt he would result in someone getting ill, you still have someone getting ill. In other words, they're saying, okay, you can fine them after they get off the plane, but the kid's already been on the plane um, breathing on on people, theoretically. Um, I... It's it's not an easy answer, and, and I don't I don't have it. A couple of people are making the point that Jeff, everybody who's saying find the parents, obviously doesn't remember what it was like to have a two year old. I I just I raise this question because you've got the order that's out there. I understand the purpose behind it, but the question is how how do you enforce something like this, and, and how vigorously are we going to enforce something like this? Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. And an interesting text during the break. Jeff, my wife and I did the right thing by wearing our masks when we were out and about. We still ended up testing positive for COVID. We had minor symptoms for 12 days like the flu. Do you really believe that the masks work? And my response to this was, I guess I don't think that wearing a mask hurt. Hurt. Can it stop you from getting COVID? No, because I, I and look, I, I know the same sort of thing. People that are, are responsible, they wear the masks when they're out in public, and, and yet, you know, they're around people that wear masks and they still get COVID. I, I understand. That's why if you if you get COVID, you, you don't deserve that scarlet A. Oh, you must have done something wrong. We we just don't know, I think, enough about all the different ways that COVID gets transmitted and all the different things. And but I mean, I guess my big reaction, and this is how I've kind of come down on the mask rules. Do I do I think that wearing a mask guarantees that you are going to be protected and only being around people who wear masks to the extent that's possible. Do I think that guarantees that you're not going to get COVID? No, it, it doesn't. Lots of examples uh, contrary. On the other hand, I guess I look at it and saying I, I just don't think it hurts. And it, at this stage, until we get more and more people vaccinated, uh, you know, anything Anything you can do to try to prevent the spread of it, to me, that that's that's a desirable sort of thing. And are, are masks 100% guarantee that you're not going to get it? No, of course not. It, but, again, it doesn't hurt. It, it just doesn't hurt. 
And if you're around other people, I mean, masks are primarily designed to stop you, if you're a carrier, from spreading it to someone else. So I guess that's that's the purpose behind the rule. And the reality is we're going to be living with that for a while. All right. This, this was one of my favorite stories from yesterday. If you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I am not a fan of presidential or gubernatorial pardons. It's just... To me, I understand that the Constitution, for example, gives the president the power to pardon people. I just think I I wish it didn't, because to me, what you have is you have presidents, particularly on their way out of office, that use this to to dish out favors to their their cronies and their buddies. And Donald Trump pardoning Steve Bannon, uh, Donald Trump pardoning Roger Stone, Bill Clinton pardoning fugitive financier uh, Mark Rich. And, And the list goes on and on and on. All these people who candidly, in my opinion, aren't worthy of pardons. One of the guys who was so sure that Donald Trump was going to pardon him, so sure that he had it arranged for a limousine to be waiting outside of the um, federal prison in Fort Worth was Joe Exotic, Rue, producing the show today and always. You know who Joe Exotic is, right? Yeah, we talked about him, oh, what feels like three years ago in April. Right. Joe Exotic was the guy that was featured on the the Tiger King, that, that Netflix that Netflix thing that that I watched, and I, it's like seven or eight episodes, and I, I freely confess that it's one of these shows that you either get or you don't. And I've recommended it to people just because you watch it, and it's a freak show. It's just a complete freak show, and you watch this, and it. I mean, I watched it from the perspective of saying, "Gosh, you know, anything that bad happens in my life, it's okay because I'm not these people." Now I understand that they're so whacked out and so weird that some people would watch it for just. Uh, some people I know said, "Jeff, we we tried to watch it. And we watched an hour of it and just said, eh, that's it. This is just this is just too crazy.'" But Joe Exotic was the the protagonist in this. Uh, in April of 2019, he was convicted. He's sentenced to 22 years in prison for his role in this murder-for-hire plot that targeted his, his rival, this woman named Carol Baskin, um, who's now, I think, on Dancing with the Stars. I just, I'll let that hang out there as well. He, he's also sentenced for killing five tigers, selling tiger cubs, and falsifying wildlife records. So he, he, he's a thoroughly, dis- not only is he really strange, but he is a thoroughly despicable guy. But, in, in my opinion, he deserves to be in prison. But he apparently had buddied up to Donald Trump Jr. and was under the impression that he was going to be pardoned by Donald Trump Sr. as Donald Trump Sr. was leaving office. And he, he did not make the cut. He was not one of the 144 that got it. He's extremely upset. He's saying that he thinks the reason he wasn't pardoned was because he's he's gay, to which my response would be, He's not being pardoned because he's guilty as hell and he's a whack job and he shouldn't be out on the streets. That that would be my reaction to it. But for people who you know think Joe Exotic was treated poorly by the criminal justice system or wonder whether there's going to be a sequel to Tiger King, the answer is at least a sequel to Tiger King featuring Joe Exotic is only going to happen if the federal prison in Fort Worth, Texas, decides to allow cameras in, which I do, do not think is going to be happening. All right, let us switch gears. Story in the Wall Street Journal today. Housing market stays tight as homeowners stay put. 
Um, here's how it starts. Americans are holding on to their homes longer, and it is costing would-be home buyers. The length of time U.S. homeowners stay put has been rising steadily, a big reason why the inventory of homes for sale is at record lows and prices are at near all-time highs. I know a couple people who are realtors here and other places. They say to me that they have never seen a time when the inventory, the supply of houses is so low that, and so the, the big point is they've got all these people who want to move. Maybe they want to buy their first house. Maybe they want to move up, but they're, they're not able to do it because there's just nothing on the market. Story in the Chicago Tribune the other day, get this, Illinois, apparently um, in some of the more popular areas of Illinois, it, it's, they're just, there's a, a frenzy which means that when a property in a desirable neighborhood comes on the market, what's happening is you will have two, three, four, five buyers who will put in an offer on the property the same day that it goes on the market. And in many cases, they will make that offer without ever having seen the home. Because if you don't, put in that offer on the first day, you're not going to be able to get it because they're, they're going to have, again, if it's a desirable home in a reasonable area and it's reasonably priced, uh, you're, it, it's going to be gone. If you wait till that second day, if you say, well, I, can, can I get a showing? I'd like to see a showing, but it's gone on the market on Tuesday and I got to come over on Thursday. It isn't going to be there. And so what you're having is that these people are just buying the houses. Now, it's not quite sight unseen because you've got the Internet. You can see the pictures. But they're not walking through the house. They're not seeing the house. And that's the only way they can get it is to do it, um, again, essentially sight unseen, at least personal sight unseen. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I find this to be a really interesting phenomenon. I understand that demand is really huge. I, I, I get that, and I understand that supply is short. Having said that, I can't imagine that I would ever personally buy a property, you know, buy a, buy a house, buy something that I was committing that kind of money to unless I had an opportunity to, to actually see it. But more and more people aren't doing it. Now, I guess there's there's protections you can build in. You can build in like an inspection clause or something like that, but that's only going to carry you so far. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Would you buy a house without having a chance to to actually look at it or look, get inside it? And have you noticed this phenomenon? And if you've purchased a house recently or sold a house recently, has it been as crazy as at least the story seemed to suggest? 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss in just a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
855-616-1620. Jeff, it really is crazy as we hear. My wife and I just moved into a house we closed earlier this month. When we were looking, we found that houses had already multiple offers on them. We missed out on multiple opportunities just to put in an offer on houses that uh, had gone on the market for a day. The house that we ended up purchasing, my wife saw, went on the market on Monday, told our realtor we wanted to see it the same day without any pictures loaded to the website. We went to see the house. We put in an offer that day, got an accepted offer the following morning. That's that. That's what the dynamic appears to be. Let's talk to uh, Brianna in Maguanago. Brianna, good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think? Well, me and my fiancé were looking for houses, and there was this one house that had come on the market, and by that same day that it came on the market, it had 14 offers already in on that house. Fourteen in one day? <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> it, it was it was ridiculous. I've never seen a house go so fast before while the whole time we were looking. Wow. Um was it was, was something special about it? Was it in a great neighborhood? Was it priced, you know, right? I mean what fourteen offers, that sounds to me amazing. That's that's incredible to me. It was it was in a great small neighborhood, quiet neighborhood. Um, it was in New Berlin, but they uh, they sent it out to people like two weeks in advance, so people had time to right. look through the pictures and set up um, showings, and that's yeah. how they got so many offers in. Yeah, well, it's de- thanks. It, it's definitely a, a seller's market out there because, especially if you know what you want and you know your price range. You and you know the area you want to be in. It, it's it is one of those situations where you you pretty much have to act. Now I I've never I've never been in that situation where I had to was so pressured that I had to buy something without having a chance to you know walk through it and look at it and think about it. But at the same time, uh, when I sold my house in Whitefish Bay a couple of years ago, it was the first day it went on the market, which was a cold, snowy Monday or Tuesday in January or February. First day we put it on the market, first people that walked through it, you know, they, they, they loved it and, you know, they made an offer and I thought I had it priced fairly and we were able to come to a deal pretty quickly. Jeff, my wife and I just purchased a home this past summer. It was a daunting endeavor. Um, the home were put on the market and by the end of the day, there were accepted offers. We also went to showings and before we even finished the showing, homes had an accepted offer. Um, what What's happening in the article is the truth. It's it's actually out there. Jeff, we spent the summer sprucing up our in-law's house, and the first weekend it had 30 showings and 13 offers, all well above the asking price. The buyer was actually a set of parents that bought it for their daughter who had never seen um, the house. Um, wow, that's amazing. Jeff, this is from my friend Jeff in Fox Point. It's completely insane to buy a house without even looking at it. I've been in some pretty bad living situations. I couldn't imagine getting suckered into a similar one with a house. Um, Jeff, very true. Luckily, we were prior homeowners, so we did sell for almost double our money, yet spent, um, you know, we had spent a little more to beat out 12 other offers would seal the deal with a personal buyer's letter and a picture of their family. Otherwise, we would have been beaten out by a cash offer. That is one of the things that I think real estate agents are, are trying to do nowadays. And and actually, there is an appeal to it that the people that are putting an offer on my house, they, they wrote a letter. And the letter, my late wife loved loved the house we had. She, she just, I liked the house. 
she just absolutely loved it. And that the letter just talked about how these folks wanted it to be their forever house, and they had a little boy, and there was another kid on the way, and they wanted it to be their forever house, and they could imagine the Christmas tree here and all that stuff. And it, um, yep, it's... Um, yeah, it, it, but it was. It was kind of like, I, and actually, I remember reading the letter thinking, you know, this, Sue would be happy that, Sue would be happy that, that this couple was getting this house that she loved so much, as opposed to, I don't know, maybe somebody that was coming in from out of town and was going to work at Foxconn for a couple years and then ter- flip it and sell it somewhere else. I know that sounds, I know that sounds kind of silly, but it, it did kind of work. Uh, Jeff, my daughter just moved into her first home in December. Not only were there many offers, but people were bidding $20,000 over on starter homes. Jeff, my friends are doing this right now. They FaceTime toward a house with their realtor walking through their new vacation property in Florida. They still have not physically been in the property. They'll see their new house in Cape Coral, Florida Friday after closing earlier in the day. Yeah, well, and you hope it all works out. I mean, that's part of the thing, too. You need to have I guess maybe it would be a different dynamic if I really knew the area. Okay, this is the area that I want to live in. I've looked at some of the places, so I, I know what the layout is going to be. I, I don't, I've don't. i never been in this particular place, but I know roughly what it's going to look like. And then you have your realtor kind of walking through with the camera, and you, you know what the floor plan is. And it's you know, a situation like that, maybe. But but here's, here is the, the reality of that. I mean, this is – in this today's day – real estate market this is pretty much what you have to do jeff we put in an offer on our house without my wife seeing it she works in the mortgage industry and was too busy to go with me we lost out on a couple of other houses so we knew we had to move fast i have a friend who tells this story bought a home in florida bought it with not only did he buy it without showing his wife he bought it without telling his wife until after the fact and so and so I'm not mentioning any names here. So and, and this was this was not an inexpensive house. This was not a, a starter home. So, you know, a few days later, his wife comes down, takes a look at the place. He says to her, well, what do you think? And she says, for, forget what the it doesn't matter what the, the dollar amount is. So let, let's say it's five hundred thousand for just for the sake of argument. That wasn't what it was. But it says, well, what do you think? And she says, well, I think you just bought a $500,000 property that your wife hates. <laughs> At which point in time, it's like, okay, where where do we go from here? Maybe it'll grow on you. Jeff, we put our house on the market in April in Greenfield, had six showings on the first day, had an offer the next day, closed in one week. Wow, closed in one week. Um, again, it, it's, it's this phenomenon that's going on. Now, I don't know how long it's going to keep up, but I will tell you this. I think... I think the real estate market is going to get even hotter because what I think is going to happen is, and I was just saying this a couple minutes ago off the air to somebody I was talking to, I, I think that there is this pent-up desire. We, we've been, we, we've been, so many of us have put our lives on hold for the last year, and there, there is this dam that's going to burst at some point in time. And it's going to happen with consumer spending, and it's going to happen with travel, and it's going to happen with home buying. I I think there's going to be, and I can't, I mean, I can't tell you if it's going to be March 1st or April 1st or July 1st or September 1st or January 1st of next year. I can't tell you when. I hope it happens sooner rather than later. But I think there is going to be a moment when there's just this this dam that breaks and people say, okay, we we want to go back and we want to have our, our normal lives. And 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 okay, we've been we've been sitting on this house. We were ready to move up to a bigger house, or we were ready to 
move or we're ready to do this, but we've kind of put this all on hold. I think you're going to see more houses go on the market, and I think you're going to see more people looking for houses. So I, I think there's going to be a huge boom. And I will tell you this. I think the businesses that recognize that, the businesses that are preparing for that rebound, they're going to be the ones that do the best. And I know it's kind of counterintuitive to say this by, by saying, okay, well, you know, consumer spending is down. You know, we're hurting here. We're hurting here. We're hurting here. I think the ones, the businesses, like I say, that are going to do the best, they're going to be the ones that are positioning themselves now so they can immediately take advantage of, of that boom. If you're an airline, you know, you you got to be ready to, okay, people are going to be traveling nowadays. These routes that we've cut back, boom, we've got to be able to move on a dime, and we've got to be able to start flying again because we're going to be the ones that get the customers. And I think it's going to be true with so many other things as well, including the home sale market. At least I hope I'm right. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. We have gone through the looking glass. Um, in Wisconsin, I, I know people hear this and they wonder if it's true. And, and the answer is is yes. We are trying to figure out ways to prioritize the vaccine because there's not enough COVID vaccine to go around. Now, I have argued that after you get past the, the obvious things, the people in their nursing homes and the frontline health care workers, not by the way to all the hospitals out there, not your 30-year-old IT guy who's working at home, but, but rather, I mean, the front line, the doctors and the nurses. I mean, I think nobody would disagree with that. Then you have to decide where do you go next. For me, I've always argued that after you get past, like, the the, the EMTs and uh, police and the firefighters, what you need to do then is start doing it based on age. Because what happens is, if you look at the statistics, and this is just, it's a, it's a numbers game. I understand somebody who's 35 years old that gets the COVID virus and can be otherwise perfectly healthy can have a really bad time with it. I understand that. But statistically, we know that for most people, if you get COVID at 80, you're much more likely to have a bad reaction than somebody at 30. If you get COVID at 70, you're much more likely to have a bad reaction less than somebody at 80, but more than somebody at 60. That's why I've argued it should be based on on age once you get past, again, those obvious frontline people. And some states are doing that. Wisconsin is not. For example, Wisconsin, um, you want to go to the front of the line? Prisoners. Prisoners at the front of the line. So, yes, yes, you are that 35-year-old guy that's working every day, driving the truck or stocking the shelves or whatever. Yeah, you're, you're going to go to the back of the line. The people that are in prison, they're going to go to the front of the line. Now, it's not just the correctional officers. Now, that's fine. I get it why it would be the correctional officers. But prisoners, prisoners are getting their vaccines before a large chunk of Wisconsin residents. All right, here's... You want to understand the insanity, though. Here's what they're doing in D.C. They're trying to figure out how do we do this. So what they're going to do, they are going to give priority. Priority, not based on age, but priority to people with pre-existing health conditions, including obesity. So the bottom line of this is if you're overweight... If your body mass index is more than like 25, if you are overweight, you go to the head of the line. If you are a smoker, 
you go to the head of the line. People with pre-existing conditions, regardless of age, go to the head of the line. Now, explain to me again, in, in what sort of reasonable world, if you get a 63-year-old guy who is not a smoker, who's not obese, um, who, who's working every day, again, in, a, in, an, in an essential business where you're having contact with people, you go... You go to the back of the line, and some 35-year-old who's smoking you know, two packs of cigarettes a day and weighs 100 pounds more than they're supposed to, they go ahead of you? It just it doesn't make any sort of sense to me at all. But that's just me. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at JeffWagner620. I sent out a tweet, which kind of it, – it's an interesting story, and of all places, the New York Times, which kind of feels – how I felt for the last, oh, couple years. It's that the headline is the three types of Republicans Donald Trump created. And and it talks about there, there's three types of Republicans. First of all, it's the never Trumpers. You know, the people that just kind of abandoned the Republican Party early on when Donald Trump took over. And their hatred and dislike of Donald Trump was so great that even when he did something that they would have otherwise liked, they couldn't endorse it because, well, it was Donald Trump that did it. it it's, it, it's again, it's that kind of cult of Trump haters. And there are some Republicans that are out there, and it was some of the never-Trumpers, too. Again, it, and, and it's not to say that you have to agree with everything he did, but they didn't agree with anything he did. So you, you have that, that cult of the, the never-Trumpers. Then you have the Trump faction, the Trump Republicans, and these are the ones that thought that Donald Trump could do absolutely no wrong. And it didn't matter if Donald Trump was not espousing conservative positions, or at least not traditional conservative or traditional traditional Republican positions. It was just Trump did it. Trump is our God. So, you know, it's got to be right. And, And how dare you question this or that or the other thing? Because if Trump says it, it has to be true. So you've got those two parts. And then you've got the more interesting part, and this is why I really send out the tweet on this. You, you've got the the rhinos, the, and they call them the new rhinos. And I guess I'm one of these these people. Rhinos, Republicans in name only, used to be liberal Republicans. It, it used to be, you know, when when you had Ronald Reagan and the conservative movement that, that kind of took over, the, the 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 rhinos were the people who voted with the Democrats more than the Republicans who didn't buy into the idea of smaller government and lower taxes and things like that. They were the Republicans in name only. That's not what a rhino is anymore. And this, this story makes the point. You know, rhino used to mean Republican in name only, but it's not. But what what it means nowadays is it's essentially it's come to mean anybody who doesn't go along with Trump on everything, anybody who dared to cross Donald Trump on anything becomes, in the minds of at least some of the Trump supporters, a, a rhino. And it goes on to give you these examples. The the conservative attorney general of Arizona, his name is Mark Brenovich, he, he's a conservative uh, by all stretch of the imagination. But because he wouldn't buy into the election with stolen stuff, he's now become a, a rhino because... He wouldn't do what Donald Trump wanted him to do. Um, you have the Georgia. You've got the Secretary of State and the governor who are incredibly conservative, lifetime Republicans, but they, they wouldn't find 12,000 votes to give Trump Georgia. And so now they've become 
the rhinos, Republicans in name only, which doesn't mean that they're not Republicans. What it means is they wouldn't do whatever Trump wanted them to do. So suddenly they become a rhino. It, it's sort of like when the kid, Donald Trump Jr., stands up before the, the riots at the Capitol the other two weeks ago and says, it's not the Republican Party. It's Donald Trump's Republican Party. Well, no, it's it's not. It's, it's the Republican Party. But in the minds of some people, if you didn't do everything that Trump wanted you to do, you're now not a Republican. No, that that's... That that's not the case. Anyways, it, it's an interesting thing, and I guess by that standard, somebody who, on occasion, would cross Trump, I guess that makes me a rhino because, because I, I believe in conservative principles. I, I sent this out on the uh, link to the story out on my Twitter account, and I you know rhinos used to be liberal Republicans. Now Ronald Reagan conservatives are considered rhinos by some if they ever dared to cross Donald Trump. And I guess my message is, as we move forward into 2022 and 24, um, you know, Trump diehards need to get over it. Because if that's now going to be the standard, you didn't do everything our guy wanted. You didn't vote not to certify the election. You didn't try to find 12,000 votes to, you know, overturn the results in Georgia. You didn't buy into the idea that the voting machines were were rigged. You didn't buy into any of this sort of stuff that was being touted by Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell or any of these people. If, if that's now the standard, trust me, the Republican Party, that tent has shrunk dramatically. It's a good story, and uh, you can read it if you follow me on Twitter. Again, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. When we come back, is the Trump brand radioactive, or can he reinvent himself again? Stick around. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Well, Donald Trump is now a former president, got on the plane yesterday, flew to Florida. The question becomes, where does he go from here? There's a piece in USA Today that says, is Donald Trump's brand radioactive or will he reinvent himself once again after his presidency? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. From a public standpoint, Donald Trump has had, well, I don't know I want to say as many lives as a cat, but but he's there's been a lot of different public versions of Donald Trump. You had, you know, the younger Donald Trump that started out as this like hotshot real estate developer who um, ended up getting into casinos and the casinos went belly up and, you know, were going bankrupt and the the whole financial empire was on the verge of crashing. And then you had the Donald Trump who was able to reinvent himself as the celebrity TV star, the guy who, you know, said, okay, I'm this incredibly successful businessman. And then you create, he gets together with Mark Burnett, who's the guy that did the Survivor TV show, and they create The Apprentice and The Celebrity Apprentice. And all of a sudden, you know, the the ratings go through the roof. And and Trump's image, whether it was the reality or not, but the image, this is this incredibly successful businessman, that, that, that goes back on track again. Then what happens is, as frequently happens on television, ratings go up and then people kind of get tired of the shtick and the ratings start to go down and Trump becomes sort of a B or a C-list celebrity who's making appearances at golf tournaments and and shacking up with, you know, aging porn stars and things of, of the like. And, and so... You know, you, you have the rise and you have the fall. And then, of course, you have the press mo- most tra- dramatic rise of all. You have the fact that he, he gets into, you know, politics 
And I think for a lot of people, myself perhaps included, I'm not sure he really wanted to be president. I just think this was a way at the beginning that he, he had of burnishing his brand. Hey, I, I can be a mover and I can be a shaker and, and this will help me. And darned if he doesn't pull it off. He gets the Republican nomination. He beats Hillary Clinton. He becomes the president of the United States. And we all know how that's gone over the last four years. It has ups, downs. He leaves office with I think the lowest approval rating, you got to go back to Nixon to get somebody leaving office with lower approval rating, but there's still a lot of people that absolutely love him. He leaves office with the Trump brand, I think, damaged. I think that's fair to say. You have um, the PGA, for example, decides he's too of how much of a hot potato. They pull their golf tournament from his properties. You have uh, cities all over the country that are trying to take the Trump name off of like Trump hotels and things like that. You've got you know criminal investigations that are being conducted out of New York into tax fraud and things like that. And, and you've got a, a brand that's definitely damaged. But at the same time, people have written Donald Trump off before. So our number, 855-616-1620, that's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, Can Donald Trump reinvent himself again? Can he be a factor in public life, business, politics, media, whatever? Can he do it? Or is at the age of 74, is Donald Trump finally finished once and for all? 855-616-1620. I actually think the answer is somewhere in between, but I'm curious. Well, is, is Trump radioactive? Are Trump properties radioactive? Is the Trump business empire essentially over? Um, or can he come back? And if he comes back, how does he come back? We discuss in a minute. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 844-855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, now here's the point this USA Today article makes. that The good news for President Trump, former President Trump, is more than 74 million Americans voted for him. Now, after the events of the last couple months, I don't know if all 74 million would still have voted for him. I, I doubt the number would be that high. Um, and some of those people might be willing to stay at his hotel, golf at the resorts, and buy products like shirts, golf accessories, and jewelry. The bad news, though, is that business experts say many companies, they're going to keep him at a distance, treating him as bad for business. Um, the fin- financiers, the, the banks that view him as a risky bet, given his history of defaulting on debts, not paying his bills on time, businesses that view him as as radioactive. So the question becomes, you know, what what does Trump do? Um, Jeff, I think his family name is so toxic now, he's never going to recover. It's his own fault. He went too far, far with the election fraud stuff and for inciting the riot. I, I do think he definitely hurt the brand. He definitely hurt the brand over the last couple months. Um, Jeff, um, you have no idea. He's coming in like Big Ben, the steam engine. Do you think he's that stupid? There's going to be Trump TV, etc. I, I, I just, I, I don't see it. I. Uh, here's a text. Jeff says, I don't think he's ever going to go away. As he gets older, one of his kids will more or less take his place. My guess is it will be Ivanka and the others will just kind of be hovering around. Jeff, he's going to come back stronger than ever and make another run for 2024. Huh. 
Um, I, I, I don't see it, Jeff. If Trump starts a third party, they will never be another Republican president. Jeff, Trump, the brand is so toxic and damaged beyond repair, um, making it completely irrelevant going forward. The second impeachment will be the cherry on the top. Yeah, that's a, an interesting point. I forgot to mention that in my recital going in. You, you do have the second impeachment proceeding that's going to be going on. Now, again, my guess, my guess is that he is not going to be convicted in his trial. What do you mean? He clearly incited a riot. I'm just saying, I'm, my prediction is there will be some Republicans, Mitch McConnell probably leading them, there will be some Republicans who join the 50 Democrats in voting to convict him. Will there be, you need, what, I think 16 or 17, I think, to defect? Will you lose 17? I don't think so. So my prediction could be wrong, but my prediction is he's not going to be convicted, and some people will view that as an exoneration. That wouldn't be me. I guess my take on this is I don't think Donald Trump is going anywhere, but I don't think, I think the damage to the Trump brand, all, you, you get to a certain point where, if you have to spend all your time putting out fires, it stops you from moving forward. He's going to be subbed of, you've got all the criminal stuff that's going on, and I'm not just talking about you know what happened in the last month or two. You've got all the IRS stuff, you've got all the tax stuff, so he's going to be fighting that battle. You know, the businesses, I, I think it's clear that the brands have been damaged. Lots of companies just don't want to do business with the Trump enterprise anymore, and I, it's going to be a long time before that comes back. As far as President Trump, you know, what does he do? Do you do do Trump TV or something like that? Well, you know, maybe you try something like that, but it's harder than it ends up sounding to do something like that. And again, if there's a damage to the brand, it's tough to figure out where you're going to get the money to do that. Um, You've got all these bills that are coming due. I mean, will President Trump be around? Yes. My guess is he will do speeches. My guess is he will... I don't know, maybe medal in the 2022 congressional elections, maybe endorsing candidates for, you know, some of the Republicans that, you know, didn't support him or at least didn't go and do what they thought he would do. Is he going to go quietly into the good night? No. Do I think he's going to be the force that he was in the media or in the world of finance or in the world of politics that he was before he got elected? The the answer is no. At the same time, I concede that, you know, Donald Trump has been great at reinventing himself over the over the years. This one, if he pulls this off, it will be the greatest reinvention, well, ever. When we come back, we'll find out what John and Melissa and Greg have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around.